Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio Broadcasting here on Saga 960 AM and right there on Coastal Carolina Network. We're live every Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern, and also right there on your podcast app. Uh, Hopefully you're trying out a new podcasting 2.0 app, something modern like the Podverse or Fountain. Uh, So you can give us a boost if you're listening there. One half of your host, Yael Osowski, broadcasting from the uh, sweltering studio in uh, Vienna, Austria. And I'm joined by David Clement, who's uh, in his triathlon gear, ready to go at it here. Uh, He's over there in Toronto, Ontario. David, how, uh, how sweats it? That's good. It's good. First triathlon of the summer coming up uh, this Sunday. And uh, yeah, excited for the grind. It's a big grind. Yeah, we'll be, um, we'll be doing some biking here. Um, not triathlon style, but um, putting the kids in a big old e-bike basket thing. And um, in the city here in Vienna, it's normally for delivering groceries, but uh, also apparently uh, putting kids in there and having a good time. So I'll be burning a couple calories. Uh, David, we, before we get into today's affairs, we will have uh, an interview. Great guest. We have uh, Christopher Snowden, the head of uh, lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London, UK. And we'll be talking about some of the alcohol issues that uh, you have written about, you've been talking about, we've discussed here on the program. He gives some very good insights. He's been uh, tracking the nannies, as it were, for a, a good while. So he's, uh, he's someone great to look look up to just because he's been publishing a lot on this stuff he's got great columns um every other day and he's got a great sub stack as well where he covers a lot of these issues uh, so we'll get to that uh, after the the first break uh but david before we do that let's talk a little bit about some um our consumer corner real quick before we get into anything political um so what is your uh your go-to for uh consumer tech uh when you're doing the workouts um you've got the watch Ooh. you got a heart rate monitor you've got uh you know, nice little Under Armour shirts. You know, what does that look like? Because I think that's something yeah. kind of interesting. So, yeah, my gear. Um, so starting with the watch, my Apple Watch, which is my heart rate monitor. The ex- the exercise function on the Apple Watch is really good. Tracks everything f- for like 40 different types of exercise. Um, so you get a lot of good data. Uh, for biking, it's an app called Strava which like maps your roots. Um, I have Hoka shoes, which are for running. Um, our, our Cervelo bike for biking. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. The tech for the, the fitness industry, especially in triathlons, is like never ending. Um, actually, it's funny. I have a couple, uh, couple nut- nutrition packages right here called Goo. These are what you use on race day, which is like carbs and caffeine and amino acids um, that you kind of consume while you're exercising to keep you fueled. And yeah, that's that's the rundown. Uh, but the tech on fitness stuff is crazy. Everything, like you can see your elevation, your time splits for uh, every metric. You can see how your heart rate responded to different things, relative effort. It's pretty cool. It's a science. It is a science. There's um, yeah. Uh, when I just I'm just doing the gym or um, walk around in the city. Um, what I like for heart rate and for steps, I have this Withings watch. Uh, Withings is a it's a French company. It was actually bought by Nokia, uh, and then uh, apparently sold by Nokia, <laughs> spun off again. Uh, but they have like a very nice 
a similar watch to it, it's not as uh, intricate as your Apple Watch there, uh, which is you know obviously glued to your hand and essentially another phone because that's many different things so you could pay with it, right? Uh, but this one just covers uh, heart rate. You know, it does your sleep cycle as well, so it tells you when you're snoring or you're in deep sleep or all this other stuff, uh, tracking your steps. Um, so I I like that, and it's also uh, it comes with the different bands, so you can you can be fashionable. You can wear it to the office, as it were, to the water cooler, to the Consumer Choice Center water cooler, uh, or you can uh, put on the rubber one uh, when you're working out, sweating, stuff like that. Uh, I remember back in the day, the old heart rate monitors, you know, you had to put that thing on your chest, the polar. Uh, isn't it amazing, though, that they've, they're able to track all this stuff just from your wrist, you know, not just steps, but heart rate stuff. And um, I, I think for swimming, Apple Watch does a lot of interesting things. I don't really know. Yeah, they do. You can. It tells you what stroke you're um, you're doing, whether you're front stroke, back stroke, breast stroke. Um, your your times, like you input the the length of the pool. That's got to be and insane in terms of like algorithms they build in for that stuff. Like great butterfly on that hundred meter, David. <laughs> yeah, and then you can compare over time, like if you're getting faster, and it's really cool. Um, I don't make enough use of it. Like if if you're the the tech for like people who pursue this seriously or professionally is crazy. Um, where I can like there, there's a pair of goggles that I don't have, um, but I would love to get if I wanted to spend money on frivolous things. Um, that there's a there's a lens in the eye of the goggle that shows you your data in real time, like through your eye, like so you can see it. It's like how fast you're going, your split times, um, your heart rate, and things like that. So like as you're swimming, you can see how fast you're going. Rather than if you're swimming now in the pool and you have an Apple Watch, like you have to pop up at the end of the pool and look at it to see like what your progress is. So this would show it to you in real time, which is like pretty cool. Oh, wow. Insane. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know it had uh, gone to that level. And, of course, there's a lot of stuff that you can integrate into the gym. There's a lot of, like, cool Bluetooth stuff, uh, different things you can plug in, plug in the USB. Obviously, TVs everywhere. Um, my gym does not have as many TVs, but it doesn't matter because they have the sauna, which is, I think is the most important part mm, of it all. Lovely. Uh, it is lovely. Um, so let's get into some of the things related to consumer choice um, out there in the wild. Um, one thing I wanted to discuss and talk about that was kind of interesting uh, we've talked about entertainment and streaming in the past. Uh, apparently, this is a new figure from uh, Britain-based MUSO. I think it's like music, uh, their version of the MPAA. Uh, apparently, data suggests that illegal websites for copyrighted content received 215 billion visits last year. Uh, so you actually saw between 2001 and 2022 a huge increase in online piracy related to uh, illegal content, you know, movies, TV shows, all kinds of things you can download. Uh, so this is a, a trend. Uh, it was a trend that was a basically nipped in the bud after you had things like Spotify and Netflix that did allow you to, to view this stuff. But I think, uh, David, we're, it's pretty easy to point this at uh, essentially the rise of... Uh, all the other streaming platforms and now you need about 18 different subscriptions just to stay up to date right yeah uh yeah <laughs> there there is the going joke that 
that uh, the combination of all the streaming platforms is what you pay for cable anyway. But um, yeah, it, it, it's actually really interesting because I'm old enough to remember the huge debate over Napster. Right, I remember like Metallica really coming out against Napster, accusing them of stealing, which technically that was. But then you look at how then the YouTube model, where like free views were encouraged for ad revenue, and now you have artists compensated because their music videos are viewed a lot of times on YouTube. It completely flipped the switch. Um, and the the old joke was like, back in the 90s you'd buy an album buy a new CD because you knew what like one single that you really liked was on it but the rest of the album was trash <laughs> and you you paid full price for it and you're all disappointed because the rest of the record sucked you don't have that anymore um, you listen more to the music you specifically like and spend less time listening to the music you don't and I think that's good yeah, I think that definitely true. And, and, yeah, that was a great innovation to be able to split up albums. You know, Apple Music, you could download and pay for an individual track, you know, 99 cents or something. And, you know, they're always coming up with different ways that they can figure out how to monetize content. And, you know, there's all kinds of revolutions that could be happening here. We could see something like we have with uh, Podcasting 2.0, which, again, I've uh, shilled a lot here, but it's the idea that you can actually send uh, little pieces of money, you know, little pieces of Bitcoin or whatever to your favorite artist, you know, to your favorite online content producer. You know, there's kind of a big influencer world out there. That's kind of what uh, Gen Z wants to be about is uh, always being an influencer. But there's all these YouTube people and the people send the money and they have Patreons and we kind of have this industry. And then we have the classic Hollywood model of producers who spend hundreds of millions of dollars on large productions in hopes of reaping their you know, the, the kind of reward once it goes to the theater and DVDs and all that stuff. Uh, but they're going to have to learn how to innovate here. And I don't know what that means for the future of the... And, and again, the entertainment industry has changed so much because now Netflix, Amazon, you know, they're producing their own movies. Mm-hmm. So for yeah, the, and it's interesting. I'd love to see the numbers on like... I mean, I'm sure there are people who get a... Amazon Prime account because that's how they can watch Game of Thrones or whatever show it is that Prime has exclusively on their platform. But I, I, like in the old model, there were clear returns, right? It was box office metrics. Now it's views, but those views aren't necessarily tied to ads if you have a Netflix account because there aren't ads. And so... Not yet. I'd, yeah, it'd be interesting. It, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out long term there are some people who who have argued that it's not sustainable that a lot of these uh streaming platforms end up spending a lot or potentially losing a lot on uh, some of these big productions um but it is interesting nonetheless uh, yeah there's a lot out there um for uh, basically trying to combat piracy online um it's kind of the interesting thing when you have something that's digital um, it's very hard to enforce some type of scarcity. You don't really have the... Because you can always infinitely copy, copy and paste. You know, if I rip a DVD, I'm easily able to take that, put it in a folder, get a link, share it everywhere. Uh, you really don't have anything that is digital that has any kind of scarcity at all. Invest in Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. 
Sorry, uh, I guess apart from Did, from Bitcoin, but <laughs> it's like when you stole my NFT, bro. It's not a joke. <laughs> yeah, so that that stuff is kind of interesting, and and to see the consumer trends are also really cool uh, because I I do know that there are going to be different platforms that try different things out. Netflix is of course cracking down on the sharing of passwords. Uh, that's sort of their method. The things have been a bit loosey goosey for a while. They've let things go, and they let people have online profiles which is kind of cool you could have four profiles if you had you paid a bit more so the whole family could watch and um basically the situation was that you know there are too many of these and people are just reusing the same profile and doing it all yeah it's 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 time to have that uncomfortable conversation with all your freeloading relatives <laughs> yeah yeah it's the same for uh cell phone plans you know i always tease my brother about that but you know you're not an adult until you get your own cell phone plan sorry bro that's true that is true. Yeah, until you break off from mom and dad's Verizon, add a phone for 20 bucks plan. Indeed, indeed. And uh, so we got a little bit left here before we go to the um, first break. Uh, David, if you could give some context to the listeners as to why we're inviting on uh, Chris Snowden, talk about uh, his topics. I think it's really good and very pertinent to a lot of the stuff that we work on every day. Yeah, so uh, a, a lot of strange stuff happening in the alcohol space, the push for cancer warnings, um, all sorts of new guidelines that are really, really, really low, like no more than two drinks per week, something I've written about. Um, and so we figured, uh, why not have Chris back on the program? He is uh, the guru of all of this stuff as the head of lifestyle economics for IEA in, uh, in London. Uh, and yeah, great, uh, great interview, great guest, has a lot of really interesting insights on how to make sense of all the craziness and what's true, what's not true, what you should be worried about as maybe somebody who drinks and what you shouldn't be. Excellent. Yeah, there's a lot of great insights there. And, uh, you know, wouldn't you know it, a lot of the international organizations that uh, purportedly are doing things to to help you and give you good information, well, it seems as if they are, they're a little biased or... Um, you know, maybe taking things in a different direction. And um, there's a lot of groups who are very willing to take up the temperance message and uh, try to impose their will on people like you and me. That's something to oppose. So we'll have uh, much more on that topic with Mr. Chris Snowden here in the next block. We've got a nice long conversations to block. So good 30 minute interview with Chris Snowden of IEA. You don't want to miss it. You guys stay tuned here to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this break. And here we go. Hello and welcome back to Consumer Choice uh, Radio. We are uh, very pleased to have back on the program Christopher Snowden, the head of lifestyle economics at the IEA. Chris, thank you very much for coming back on Consumer Choice Radio. My pleasure. Good to be here. So we wanted to chat with you because there seems to be this very uncomfortable push for alcohol uh, re-regulation. Um, everything from very very low guidelines which are we're seeing as a suggestion here in canada to cancer warnings on um on alcohol which we're seeing in ireland even so far as some folks suggesting that non-alcoholic beer should be under heavy regulations for advertising uh, before we get into the specifics 
Where is this push coming from? Because it seems to be very divorced from kind of the lived experience of ordinary people. Yeah, well, it's just public health extremists. You give them an inch, they take a mile, you know? Um, they're very explicitly, and it's been quite obvious for years that this is happening, to try to treat um, alcohol like cigarettes. I mean, that's exactly why they want cancer warnings on, on cigarettes. Uh, sorry, on alcohol. Um, they're not so bothered about having liver cirrhosis warnings on alcohol, even though that's by far the, 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 the main thing to worry about if you're drinking a lot. Um, they're not telling people not to drink too much. They're not giving any indication of what excessive drinking is, except in Canada when they say it's two drinks a week. Um, you know, the lunatics have really taken over the asylum. If you just look at the last few days, you've got um, you've got individual health warnings going on cigarettes. And um, you've got, in Ireland, this cancer warning idea, well, policy for alcohol. And now the same people who've been banging the drum for these health warnings on booze uh, are demanding a ban on zero alcohol beer adverts. So essentially soft drinks. Um, you would think these people would be happy with brewers taking the alcohol out of beer. You'd think it was a dream come true, but no, they, they don't want anyone to be encouraged to consume the stuff. So, you know, if you don't, if these people don't get any pushback and they haven't done for years, all they get is, you know, government grants, really. They're going to keep on going. Um, they're never going to stop. And so you're going to see this extremism become institutionalized. And when you say extremism, it feels like these these folks are very much the you should never drink really any alcohol ever um, type of folks. And I know that there are some international groups, international temperance groups um, like Movendi, um, mm. which rather which had a rather ominous name prior to rebranding um, that kind of try yeah, and drive the international influence. order of good Templars. Um, yeah. It feels like something, like out, something of, out of the Da Vinci code. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, what, what role do those folks have to play in this? Are they kind of driving the ship or, or, or kind of manipulating the information that's available to the people who are ultimately making these regulatory decisions? Yeah, I mean, there's a worldwide kind of um, web of temperance campaigners. Um, and I use the word temperance campaigners very specifically because, you know, these guys can be traced back to the mid-19th century when they were calling for prohibition, you know, the teetotal gospel temperance organizations. And most people have no idea um, how big a part these kind of gospel temperance teetotal groups still play in alcohol policy and it almost sounds like a conspiracy theory when you start talking about the order of good templars you know but that's what mavendi was until about three or four years ago they changed the name to mavendi which is an unbelievably bland name i don't think it's derived from anything i think it's just uh, a name that deliberately sounds corporate and bland which incidentally is the same reason diageo is called diageo diageo doesn't mean anything either it's just a corporate name diageo the, the drinks company um but uh, yeah mavendi um, clearly felt that going around, even as IOGT, which is how they generally, um, you know, term themselves, sounded a bit weird. And people could go on Google and find out that these guys um, back in the day were supporting full on prohibition in Scandinavia and elsewhere. So um, it's not just them. There's a very interesting guy who's well into his 80s now 
um, called Derek Rutherford. He's British. He's a he's a um, British Methodist Labour supporting uh, temperance campaigner. You know, he's he's written um, written about this. He makes no bones about the fact that from a very young age, he, his two loves were the socialist movement and the temperance movement. And he's been involved in alcohol policy for years and years in Britain, decades, and and has helped to steer it in the direction of traditional temperance, which is now essentially the default setting in public health. Um, over the course of the last 50 years, the way people in public health look at alcohol is much less as an individual problem, is much less about alcoholism as a kind of, you know, the disease model of alcoholism and much more about uh, trying to suppress drinking at the population level. You can see how that suits the public health lobby. It's exactly what they do with smoking. It's what they're trying to do with sugar and various other things. But you can also see how it would appeal to the you know, good old-fashioned temperance movement who just don't like people drinking in, in general. Um, and this guy, Rutherford, he's set up so many different groups. There's one called Eurocare. A lot of them got quite bland names, um, but they're, they're active at the WHO levels, Mavendi in particular is more or less an official partner with the WHO um, and very active at the EU level and um, in, in national governments. So, yeah, you shouldn't underestimate uh, how much, you know, that that tradition, that old fashioned tradition of gospel temperance is still very much alive and kicking. Yeah. And uh, Chris, one thing you write about and I saw one of your latest articles in The Critic um, in defense of booze, uh, so it was called. Uh, you mentioned how they're they're attempting to create this illusion of parity uh, between you know your normal alcohol products and uh, tobacco products, uh, which obviously we do know cause cancer, and uh, we have all types of different laws and now market alternatives that do improve that a little bit. Uh, when it comes to the the warning of sort of this method of governing or nannying, uh, as you call it. Um, you have another article about the abnormality of nannying, which I very much enjoyed too. Um, you know, what is the end goal of this? What is the, if you, if we're looking at these organizations and somehow we're able to get to these board meetings and figure out what their, you know, 10 year plan is, what's their end goal and how harmful would that be, you think, for consumers, individuals, and people just generally like their freedom? Uh, well, for the consumers, it's always bad news. I mean, over the kind of over a 10 year horizon, their goals will be things like having a framework convention on alcohol control, very much modeled on the WHO international treaty, the framework convention on tobacco control, which kind of obliges member states to bring in all sorts of. Um, what the WHO calls best buys, but actually not particularly effective policies, things like banning advertising, um, increasing taxes, and so on. Um, they would also be wanting to have graphic warnings, I would think, probably plain packaging. I mean, again, you just look at what's happened with smoking and, and assume that they're going to broadly copy that. They want to expand minimum pricing beyond the couple of countries that already have it, even though that hasn't really been shown to work and has been, in many respects, counterproductive. Certainly cost consumers a lot of money. Um, but over a longer horizon, well, who knows? I mean, th th there are different people um, in the kind of anti-alcohol movement. Um, some people genuinely are not against alcohol. They just want to help people who are, uh, you know, suffering or addicted to it. You have the police are interested in the public order aspects of it but are not teetotalers and then you have people who really are teetotalers you know you have all sorts of different groups there and if this crusade carries on down tobacco road and it go goes ultimately 
in a prohibitionist direction, some of these factions are going to dr drift away. They'll, they'll feel that they've achieved what they wanted to do, and they'll go and do something else with their time, leaving only the, the hardliners. Um, but you've got to ask yourself, you know, if, we, if this is 1964, and you ask someone, what is the end goal uh, with, with tobacco? Um, not many of them would say, well, we want to, we want to prohibit it completely. Um, a lot of them would say, we just want to have warnings and maybe restrict advertising on TV a bit, maybe put a tax on, on the product. Um, but over time, partly because of mission creep, partly because the moderates tend to peel away, you end up with more and more extreme demands. So the logical conclusion to this campaign, as with smoking, is, is total prohibition. Um, I don't think it'll probably get to that stage, certainly not in Britain, because there's, there's way too many consumers, and I don't see those consumers being whittled away in the same way that the number of smokers being whittled away. But logically, that's the, um, that is the rational, logical conclusion to any campaign, any movement that puts health as not just a priority, but as the be-all and, be and end-all. And I'm wondering what you think of the cognitive dissonance, because while they're discussing temperance in these you know, various areas and we're talking about tobacco and alcohol, uh, we also do see the push for cannabis legalization. Um, and sometimes it's by the same groups or same individuals. Um, we see this, at least in the United States at the state level. Um, in Canada, it's sort of the same thing to where we let's legalize cannabis as much as possible, but then restrict as much as we can everything related right. to uh, alcohol, tobacco and the rest. Uh, do you think there's some cognitive dissonance there? Do you think it's just different factions fighting for different things? Or is just public health just doesn't know yeah, yeah. how to Real really quick. fend for itself? Real ahead, quick, it, it, it extends, far, in Canada at least, it extends far beyond uh, far beyond uh, cannabis. It's the same folks who are distributing free hydromorphone and opioids, which it could Good be needles, a, which, yeah. yeah, and safe injection sites and testing facilities, which you could make a very strong argument save lives, um, are the same ones saying we don't want to stigmatize drug users, and it's like, what about alcohol? It's like, no, no, we want to shame them. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? On on the face of it, um, I mean, partly it's a kind of generational thing in that you know you have. Um, a couple of generations reacting against the previous generations who just like smoking and drinking. Um, the kind of legacy of the 60s and the legalization of pot being such a, a, a big issue for the 60s generation hasn't completely gone away. But a lot of it, I think, actually is down to people in public health just want more things to regulate. You know, you can't regulate a market that's completely illegal. So for the time being, at least, until they do achieve prohibition of tobacco, They've got that to regulate. They've got that to talk about. The money keeps coming in, um, and not everyone, by any means, in the even in the anti-smoking movement, actually wants to totally prohibit it. Um, so, cannabis—you legalize it. I mean, look at the way it's being legalized. I mean, there are a few places where it's been legalized in a relatively free market way, but most of the world where legalization has taken place, and certainly in Europe, where it's being seriously discussed in places like Germany. Um, it's either kind of glorified decriminalization in which you can kind of, you know, you, you can own a plant uh, as long as you grow it yourself, you know, and maybe have some friends around, but that's about the, 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 uh, the extent of it. Um, or you have a really heavily regulated marketplace or a state monopoly or an effective monopoly. 
Um, and so it does. I think it actually gives the public health people more more powers. You know, it certainly gives them a, a broader canvas to to work with. Um, and you know, the public health people again. Yeah, you know, you got to remember it's, it's a it's a broad coalition, and a lot of them genuinely do feel it's wrong to be actually imprisoning people or fining people for consuming cannabis uh, or possessing cannabis. Yeah, and even the prohibitionists in 1920s America didn't actually criminalize the user, you know? I mean, they quite wanted to. After By, by about the late 20s, once the whole thing was falling apart, they seriously talked about criminalizing possession. But it was never illegal to possess alcohol or to, or to consume alcohol. It was only illegal to produce it manufacture it and transport it. Uh, in other words, it was an anti-industry move. It was an anti-booze industry move. And um, most of the people in public health who want to legalise cannabis are very keen not to have any kind of industry, or certainly not an industry of any um, size involved in it. Yeah, it's uh, that was that had long been the gripes that Yael and I had with legalisation, was that they they rolled it out in the silliest of ways, um, in Canada, the complete yeah, in Canada, yeah. that completely undermined the whole point of of uh, undermining the black market. Yes, I mean, I think the most egregious example beyond the the way in which the products are packaged, which I think is just silly. Yeah, um, yeah. you buy your weed from the government, David. That's the worst, <laughs> that's the worst one. Oh, and we do want to hear much more about that. Uh, <laughs> We're going to stay here with uh, Chris Snowden for segment two. You guys stay tuned. Uh, This is Consumer Choice Radio. Stay tuned to that dial. Keep listening, and we'll be right back after this break. And we are back here on Consumer Choice Radio. David, you were mentioning something about... uh, Canada's great uh, cannabis legalization plans, and what's the worst thing? Well, no, I, I think the biggest faux pas was they only legalized dry flour for the first year. Uh, edibles and beverages weren't legal. The reduced risk products were not legal for a year, yeah. <laughs> and so um, obviously those are available widely and at higher potencies. Well, yeah, I was there with. I was there a, a, about a year or two after they legalized it with the BBC and some politicians and we were speaking to people in public health and people in politics and people from the police and they were all saying this has been a great success and then we went to one of the shops, which is you know, not a particularly no. fun experience, um, where you saw this all the products, which is hugely overpriced compared to what you could get from a dispensary or from you know, the streets. And then we looked at the figures and it was like, well, more than half the market is still illegal after 18 months of legalization. It doesn't seem a huge success to me. And I think, I mean, we were in Toronto and I was told they only had four shops for the entire Toronto area of how many millions of people. Um, so, yeah, it, was a, it, seemed, it seemed botched, but it was botched because they didn't want anybody, they didn't want an industry. They didn't want anyone to kind of um, to become the Philip Morris of yeah. cannabis. Um so one of the one of the topics, because I, I read your your latest piece, so the push for cancer warnings, um, because the data on this, it, it seems to me that the the folks who push for this are are dealing with relative risk in a in somewhat of a deceitful way, where they say, oh, 
drinking 14 drinks a week doubles your risk of some type of, of cancer. But they don't really explain the numbers of how rare that cancer is and how the percentage may go from like a tenth of a percent to a twentieth of a percent. Is that something we're seeing? Is it is that a major blind spot for the folks who are pushing for these warning labels? Well, it's a feature rather than a bug, so I wouldn't call it a blind spot. I mean, the 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 aim of these warnings is to scare people off drinking. I'm not against you know warnings if they convey useful information that most people are unaware of and if having that information would make them change their behavior that's just fixing a kind of information asymmetry i don't believe that there is a significant uh, degree of consumer ignorance when it comes to alcohol people might not know exactly what all the health risks risks are but they know enough if they know that drinking a lot is bad for them right um, and how much they think is a lot is, you know, is a scientific question, which is certainly not being answered by having cranks in Canada saying that two drinks a week are going to kill you. But, you know, I'm not against information. The thing about these warning labels, I don't believe that the people promoting them are acting in good faith. I don't believe that they want people to be properly informed. I think they want people to come away with a highly exaggerated sense of the health risks, um, which is why they don't mention excessive drinking they don't say drinking too much causes cancer they don't give you any idea of the magnitude of the risk and as you say actually if you look at the the cancers that are linked to alcohol consumption um there's seven of them and six of them really are very rare Uh, and if you let people know what their absolute risk of getting say mouth cancer is and what that risk is if they drink then I really doubt that many people would say, okay, I'm going to become teetotal from now on, even though I love drinking. It's just not going to happen. You know, I've been told that dentists, who are the people who usually um, end up identifying and diagnosing, um, or yeah, spotting uh, mouth cancer initially, they on average will spot one case in their entire career, right? It's really not a very common cancer. Um, and often you need to be smoking as well. Uh, in order to in order to get it the only one of the seven cancers which is not rare is breast cancer which of course is extremely rare for men so you've really only got half the population at risk but still it is a common cancer fortunately has a very high survival rate um and the evidence that light drinking causes breast cancer in my opinion is really quite weak certainly much much weaker than all the evidence showing that moderate drinking reduces your risk of heart disease and stroke which also is not being mentioned on these supposedly educational warnings right um so breast cancer yeah well they say the figure is that you know um one drink a day increases your risk by seven percent well again what's what's the absolute risk it's not trivial when it comes to breast cancer it has to be said is is a 7% increase or a 14% increase if you have two drinks a day significant to enough to worry about i don't know probably not i i would i would be surprised again if if women if given full information about what the risks are um between alcohol and breast cancer decide they're going to stop drinking or even cut down their their consumption an interesting fact is that the risks from drinking for breast cancer, I mean drinking two or three drinks a day, um, they're very similar to the risk from breast cancer from taking the contraceptive pill. 
Now, I would suggest to you that a lot of people are totally unaware that the contraceptive pill is a risk factor for breast cancer. It's certainly not something that people in public health go on about. If you read the studies looking at it, which does find something like a 25% increase in risk, the authors will often go out of their way to say this is actually a very small increase in risk and you know you shouldn't let it put you off taking the pill. I agree with them on that, but there's a very it's a very different messaging from what we're getting about alcohol. And what do we what do we know? Because I've seen you write about this, um, and I've gotten some some flack on uh, on Twitter, the that great marketplace of of ideas um, about the J curve and whether or not it exists for for alcohol consumption. And I'll, just a brief explainer on the J curve: essentially, the idea that for whatever reason, um, those who consume alcohol moderately don't see their all-cause mortality uh, increase until beyond usually one or two drinks a day. Um, yeah, at least, yeah. Is, 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 is that an accurate description? And where is the where is the debate on whether or not the J-curve exists? Well, there shouldn't be a debate about it. I mean, in a sense, you can debate any epidemiological finding that, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation and so on. But on that basis, you would dismiss every epidemiological finding, including the link between smoking and lung cancer. Right? At some point, the epidemiological evidence becomes so consistent, so strong, that you accept that there is uh, a genuine association here, and that association has to be causal because there's no other obvious explanation. Um, and the evidence on the, the J-curve, which, as you say, shows that you know uh, moderate drinkers have a reduced risk of overall mortality, uh, which is mainly driven by a very substantial reduction in heart disease risk, stroke risk, also uh, several other diseases, including diabetes. People who drink at moderate levels have a lower risk than a teetotaler. And then that is a J curve because it then goes up like a hockey stick once people start drinking significant quantities of alcohol on a, on a regular basis. Um, now, of course, the Public health people don't question the, the the second part of that. They accept that there's a big increase in risk for people drinking heavily. What they deny is that the the J curve goes down um, for moderate drinkers. And what can you say other than we've got 50 years of evidence showing that that's exactly what happens and that because the implications of it can be seen to encourage drinking, this is a finding that has been tested more than virtually any epidemiological finding in history because so many people are keen to disprove it. And that's fine. That's what science is all about. Try and falsify the hypothesis. They've tried to hypothesize, uh, to falsify the hypothesis. They've failed to do it. And the kind of people you're probably talking about on Twitter almost certainly come up with a midwit line about, well, it's just people who used to drink alcohol. Um, they, got, they got sick because they drank so much alcohol. And so the people who are not drinking at all are actually just former drinkers who are ill, and that's why they seem to be less healthy than the moderate drinkers. No, we, this has been studied to death for at least 30 years. In the, in the best studies, we exclude the former drinkers. We only look at the people who've never drunk in their lives. And then they'll come back saying, well, there must be something different about these people who never drink. Maybe the never drinkers are, are unwell for whatever reason. Well, look, yeah, maybe. You know, that's tr you know, these kind of questions can be raised by any epidemiology. And that's why we have 
adjustments. That's why we control for things. We controlled for everything. We've looked at every possible explanation for this. And the only one that remains by the end of it is the fact that drinking alcohol actually is good for you in moderate quantities. It's as simple as that. We've also, by the way, got all sorts of supporting evidence uh, on from animal studies for example we have good theoretical reasons biological mechanisms to think that this is perfectly plausible it's consistent it's not for every disease it would be very suspicious if people were healthier on every level if they're um, moderate drinkers it's not true of cancer for example right so this is not just some weird cohort effects in which people who never drink are just inherently less healthy than people who drink moderately. It has to be concluded after all these years that there is something about moderate consumption of alcohol which is actually good for you. And obviously the temperance lobby hate this. I don't think it's that big a deal. Personally, I stand up for drinkers on libertarian grounds and because drinking's enjoyable. I don't drink because it's good for my heart or anything like that. Doesn't really make any difference to me whether there's a J curve or not, but it matters massively to the people in public health who are trying to clamp down on alcohol, I guess because um, they can't use the no safe level line that has served them so well with tobacco and indeed with secondhand smoke. Absolutely love it. 100%. And uh, Chris, you do publish every year the Nanny State Index. Uh, This is about the best and worst countries to eat, drink, smoke and vape in Europe. Uh, We have the 2023 edition, uh, Turkey coming out at number one and uh, Germany. All right, all the way down at the very bottom. Um, there's a lot of things that we could ask and parse, but sort of a you know, lot of last question. What did you learn in putting it together this year? Any trends that surprised you? Uh, what should uh, a lot of people know about some of the regulations that are happening in Europe? Because I think that's also important for informing a lot of the debate uh, throughout North America, too. Yeah, well, I mean, the general trends are obviously all in the, the wrong direction. And then Norway repealed its sugary drinks tax. That was the only bit of good news pretty much since the last edition. Um, notably, there's a lot more syntaxes going around, uh, presumably because governments got themselves in so much debt during the pandemic. Um, so we're seeing more and more taxes on sugary drinks, on artificially sweetened drinks, on vape juice, uh, as well as on the usual targets of alcohol and tobacco. Um, yeah, vaping, it, it's very worrying to see really what's happening with vaping. Uh, at the EU level, a leaked document recently suggested that the EU is looking at an EU-wide e-cigarette tax. E-cigarette taxes are terrible ideas uh, from from every angle, you know, including a health angle. Um, and well, we must hope that they try and introduce that. But yeah, governments are scrambling around for money. And smokers, drinkers, and vapors are easy targets, I guess. My pleasure. Take care. Good luck. Take care. Uh, always great to have Chris on to discuss a lot of these issues. He's got some some great international perspective. And as we mentioned, he's been doing a lot of stuff uh, really tracking all the different nanny state policies, uh, particularly around Europe, but he's done a great job opining on things both in Canada and the U.S. Um, so we'll also link to the snowden.substack.com where you can read a lot of Chris's writings on this. He's very present in U.K. media, and uh, we're you know getting him a little bit more into Canadian media too. And now, look, he's on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, Chris is an amazing guy to follow 
and um, basically, you know, sees a lot of this stuff coming. He was able to track a lot of things that were happening in Australia. He was able to track things that were happening across the European continent, the UK, and always makes an interesting case uh, standing up for your freedom to choose. And uh, consumer choice is what it's all about. And I think Chris does a great job underlining that. Always a great guest here on the program. I want to thank you guys for tuning in today. Starting off the month of June, things are uh, starting to slow down a little bit. Hopefully you're able to enjoy your back patio. Um, I know David is. You're able to enjoy your home and you're able to maybe hit a little vacation if all things go well. Uh, But regardless, we're always here. Consumer Choice Radio, consumerchoiceradio.com. We're here every single Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern on Saga 960 AM and on Coastal Carolina Network. Also available on your podcast application, whether it be Apple or Spotify or anything else that you might try. Uh, Some like podcasting 2.0 apps, things like Podverse or Fountain, which you can also find in your app stores. So thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We'll be back next week for more on Consumer Choice Radio. Stay tuned and we'll be back.